<clears throat> well, during uh, the the uh, the winter months, we normally try <clears throat> to secure a local speaker, and we do that one for someone who will brave the elements and uh, make it here through snow, sleet, hail, and uh, you know, whatever else there is. So we again we we try and <clears throat> have a local person. And when I was doing this and uh, looking for ideas for next year, I asked Mr. Newman uh, to give some assistance. And we were having lunch and, and we were talking and he had given a number of suggestions and these were being discussed. And then we drifted off to talking about Chicago during the, the Civil War. and. Mr. Newman said, well, you know, of all the years in the club, no one has ever done anything on Chicago and, and the Civil War. And I had said, well, boy, that, I would have thought that had been a very common subject and it would have been done for some time. But he said, no. And, and we continued and kind of out of the blue, he said, Sullivan, Sullivan, that's who you, you should get to do it. It's right up his alley. He'll do it. Get Sullivan. Well, later that evening, after the meeting, Mr. Newman came over and said, I've talked to Sullivan, and Sullivan's going to do it. He's the man to do it. Well, I think it's quite evident by the turnout that we have here this evening that you two agree that Sullivan is the one uh, to do this. So, you know, Mr. Sullivan's a person uh, you all know who has never been lost for words. He is a virtual storehouse of little-known and obsolete facts, a courier of uh, lyrics, prose, and proverbs. His rostrum is wherever he can corner you to talk to you. So please lend your attention and uh, learn about Chicago during the Civil War, Heartland of Freedom, our good friend and past president, Wild Willie Sullivan. When you start to do a talk like this, you try to look in for a bunch of the standard reference works. I did find perhaps, uh, it was a Chicago public school student who did it, did perhaps the best history of the Civil War and she shamed me by her efforts. She was a sixth grader. Her explanation of the Civil War was, Abraham Lincoln was born in a cabin. Abraham Lincoln became president. States fought states. Abraham Lincoln died. It was over. I don't know what I can add to that. <laughs> she had a real knack for encapsulating the Civil War. The story of uh, Chicago during the Civil War is probably one more suited to a volume than a paper because we're speaking of nothing less than the effect of a major historical movement on over 100,000 people. If we were compiling such a book, we might mention the Underground Railroad, John Brown passing through Chicago under the protection of Alan Pinkerton, the rivalry between Douglas and Lincoln, and the full away of troops that left the city for the front. Alas, this is beyond our capability, but nonetheless, I'll try and turn a few dusty pages for you this evening. Chicago in 1860 was a community of slightly over 109,000 souls 
nearly half of them foreign-born. It was a city of contradictions. The city had become the chief grain shipper in the United States in 1858. Horse car lines served the city. The community was patrolled by a uniformed police department. As an aside, as I was reading about the police department, it was the first time they were ordered uniformed, by the way, by Mayor Long John Wentworth in 1860. They had all of the trappings and accoutrements of our modern policemen, except their badges were leather. I guess nobody could call them a copper then, I guess, right? But in any case, there is an amusing account of the police force in 1862, which I must share with you before going on. Then you'll see why I'm going to bring up about the rest of Chicago. It was said that uh, outside of the courthouse square, one could scarcely find a Chicago policeman whose main activities were practicing with their clubs on some drunk or some black man, if not too brawny. 1862, that's a stranger's reaction to the Chicago Police Department. The first University of Chicago had opened. Brinks Incorporated, the armored car company, had just been founded and there were more than 100 houses of prostitution. Who were the people of Civil War Chicago? The largest ethnic groups were the Irish and the Germans. Of the native-born, over half came from the old Northwest states, Indiana, Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, and Illinois. Most of the working classes earned between 75 cents and a dollar and a quarter a day. But whether rich or poor, Chicago citizens were largely young and largely interested in what we'd call today upward mobility. What was the business of Chicago? The business of Chicago was meatpacking, but it was pork that made the wheels turn. Over a million pounds a year. Beef, too, was an important product, but it was pork that fed the families of Chicago. In 1862, when the meatpackers finally organized, they called themselves the Pork Producers Association, which still exists today. The Illinois Pork Producers Association is still one of the largest in the city. The city was not a manufacturing center in the classic sense. No pig iron was manufactured in Chicago before the Civil War, though by its end we were manufacturing everything up to and including steel railroad rails. Another business of Chicago was tourism. In 1860 and 1864, the city constructed buildings to house the Republican and Democratic conventions, respectively. But it wasn't really a tourist paradise because the gas works and industrial meatpacking had turned the city into an unhealthy place for all. Let's let Lieutenant Governor John Bross tell us about it. When the wind blew strongly from the south, the water from the river, made from sewage mixed with it into an abominably filthy soup, was pumped up through the pipes to the poorest street gammon and to the nabobs of the city. The water often tasted of creosote from the gas works and also carried typhoid fever, dysentery, and cholera. Politically, the city and county had turned to the Republican Party, carrying both Fremont and Lincoln. In fact, during the election of 1860, Lincoln received 10,697 votes, Douglas 8,094, 
Bell, the Constitutional Union candidate, 107, and John Breckinridge, Southern Democrats, only 87 votes in all of Chicago. The anti-Douglas feeling that had marked the early 1850s, before, by the way, Douglas became a Chicagoan at that time when he was not a popular man due to the Lecompton Compromise issue, he was a downstater. Uh, we can forgive a lot to our native sons, uh, as evidenced by my being behind the podium today. <laughs> In fact, the maverick Democrat turned Republican Long John Wentworth, the only mayor of Chicago named after a pastry, uh, was the mayor. And the city would hew the line, except in the city elections of 1862 and 1863, where there were questions of local corruption, where it would hew the line for the Republican Party during the entire war. Why the Republican Party? Basically, the political arena was not without its share of bigotry. As I have said, the largest ethnic groups were the Irish and the Germans. It was against them that the know-nothing mayor of Chicago, Dr. Levi Boone, a scion of the famous Daniel Boone, had sought to close their Sunday taverns and eliminate the selling of beer, leading to the famous Lager Beer Riot of 1856, put down in large part by the Irish militia organization, the Montgomery Guards. <laughs> the prejudice against the laboring classes had largely dissipated by 1860, however, but here the seeds of present-day Chicago were sown. The Irish clung to the Democratic Party. Seventy-five percent of the Irish laborers in Chicago were what we would classify as unskilled. The Irish clung to the Democratic Party with its platform of discrimination against the black. In fact, as a Democrat, Long John had led the fight for a state constitution that prohibited the immigration of black citizens into the state. This is free black stuff. It's not, it has nothing to do with slavery. Woven into the Democratic Party's pattern of discontent was the threat of being displaced by cheap black labor. In the Republican rural areas, there was a widespread use of free blacks as farmhands. And this would only be changed during the war when the husband went off and was afraid to leave a white wife at home with free black farmhands. In our own Worth Township where I live, there were more free blacks resident per capita in 1860 than there are today. While they went off to war, the prejudice crept in to the rural areas of Cook County. And even during the Civil War, in a modern twist during 1864, the typographers of Chicago went on strike to prohibit the Times from firing good union men and hiring gasp females. Ooh. Ooh. Surprisingly enough, there never seemed to be any widespread sentiment against the Israelites, as they preferred to be called during this period. Anti-Semitic sentiment was so largely unknown that many prominent citizens went on record as opposing special insurance bonding forms that New York insurance companies required for Jewish business people and offered to drop all of their business with these companies if they wouldn't relent. Kind of uh, an interesting smorgasbord of picking on people you don't like. 
If the Irish wedded themselves to the Democratic Party, the Germans went heart and soul for the Republicans and just about every other ethnic group, too. Uh, but surprisingly enough, the Germans' idol during the beginning of the Civil War period was the pathfinder himself, John C. Fremont. I've spent many long hours trying to figure out exactly what the Germans saw in Fremont. I can freely confess to you that I haven't the slightest idea. Even during 1860, they were forming Republican Fremont clubs hoping to draft Fremont for the uh, Republican nomination. The Germans in Chicago were largely better educated. They went largely by the classification that we would call, that they called mechanics, but that we would call various kinds of skilled labor. They were on the higher end of the, of the earning scale. They were making, at the start of the war, between a dollar and a quarter and a dollar seventy-five an hour. During the war, with the shortages of manpower, they would be making, in some cases, as much as two, uh, I'm sorry, that should have been 100, uh, should have been per day. They would have been making three dollars a day, not an inconsiderable amount of money in the time. We've talked a little bit about the politics and a little bit about the prejudice. And this is all the backdrop onto which the grand players are going to come. Starting in the 1850s, a martial fever swept Chicago, as in most places. As the poet would have us believe, the youth ardent for some desperate glory believed in the old phrase, dulce et decorum est pro patriae mori. If you're not up on your Latin, that's it's fitting and sweet to die for your country. I've always felt that it was more important to live for it. In any case, a young man named Ellsworth is probably the best known. A man who took tactics to a new level. In 1858, he had formed a Zouave company. By 1860, they had gone on a successful nationwide tour and turned America on to the Zouave fever. There's an interesting story that's told in Elmer Ellsworth to show you the kind of man that he was. During this national tour in Detroit, one of his men had fouled up the drill, and his uniform was taken away, and he was given a chief suit of civilian clothes and a railroad ticket back to Chicago. During one of his exhibitions in Detroit, two others of his men could not hear his commands clearly, an unusual occurrence for Ellsworth. And he dressed them down goodly and properly for ruining a maneuver, so as he was talking with his well-wishers afterwards in Detroit, the two men came up, stood to attention, dressed only in their underwear, and saluted him. He asked them what was the meaning of all of this, and they said that they had reported for clothes and transportation. Ellsworth, finally getting the idea and remembering what he said, he said, no, that's all right, put your uniforms back on, you'll not go back to Chicago today. They won, and for many years, until the Chicago Fire, the banner that Ellsworth was given as the premier military company in the United States used to reside in the Chicago Historical Society. As an aside, it uh, grieves me when I read the list 
of the regimental banners and the things that were lost in the great Chicago fire that had been placed with such loving care into the Chicago Historical Society, hoping that it would be kept. But the November election was over. Abraham Lincoln was to be president. And on the ninth day of April, that fatal gun at Charleston boomed over the land. The die was cast. It was war. My alma mater, Northwestern University, has a rather good account of what that was like, and I'm going to read it for you now. The account of General John Page, at that time a student at Northwestern University. The time had come to show your colors. Fort Sumter had been bombarded and forced to surrender. We cast about to procure a flag to raise over the university building, but none could be found. Bunting could not be purchased. The loyal people had exhausted the supply. So the girl students set their nimble fingers to work and presented us one made from calico. And in the presence of the whole population of the surrounding country, we hauled it to the peak of the flagstaff, and then and there, raising our right hands, swore to protect the honor of that flag with our lives. It was a solemn, sad, and impressive scene. Boys in their teens dedicating their young lives to their country, and well they kept their oaths. The village, the city, and the national cemeteries bear witness to their devotion to the Union. In every army of our land, east and west, the Northwestern students the brawny lads of the West shared with their countrymen the dangers of the battlefield, the privations and hardship of the camp and the march. The prisons of the South and the lonely unknown grave claimed their quota of my companions. The excitement became so intense that books were abandoned and many began to pack their trunks. All were waiting for something to turn up. When the news came that the president had called for 75,000 militia for three months service. It being late Saturday and no Sunday trains in those days, many of us walked to Chicago where we found everybody on the streets, flags flying from every house. That's well and fine, but it takes a little while to get a war fever together. Various militia companies has existed, of course, in Chicago, starting back to the 1840s. In Chicago proper, and this is a scene that's going to be duplicated in just about every township meeting hall, churches, but the one downtown was the biggest. Friday evening, April 19th, a mass meeting of the citizens was held in Bryan Hall, now the Grand Opera House, well it's not there anymore, at which patriotic speeches were made and resolutions were adopted to sustain the government, suppress the rebellion, and maintain the union. What were these people to do now that we were at war? This may sound strange to the modern ear, but a subscription of the businessmen of Chicago of $30,000 was made that night, expressly made as a gift, not a loan, to the federal government, and a committee appointed to carry out the wishes of the people to see the Union preserved. Some of these names you'll recognize, some of them you won't, but I think it's worth 
listing the members of the Committee of War, the City of Chicago, Edward H. Haddock, Lauren P. Hilliard, Benjamin F. Carver, Frederick K. Leitz, George Armour, Hiram E. Mather, John L. Hancock, Julian Sidney Rumsey, Orrington Lunt, an Evanstonian, Philip Conley, P.L. Underwood, John James Richards, F. Granger Adams, Horatio Gates Loomis, Robert Law, Alexander White, Wedman Prindeville, Edward I. Tinkham, Roselle Marvin Ho, a key pork packer, Nelson Tuttle, John Gage, George W. Gage, Charles G. Wicker, Gurdon S. Hubbard, Thomas J. Kinsella, Elephant Wood, Homer E. Sargent, and Uriah H. Crosby. Mr. Augustus Burley became the chairman of this committee, and Samuel Horde was the secretary. The Honorable Julian Rumsey, former mayor of the city of Chicago, after whom a street is named in my hometown of uh, Oakland, gave the use of his building at 44 to 46 LaSalle Street without charge. And the committee was in session daily from early morning until late at night. Now imagine, if you will, this city of 109,000 souls, cut off largely by farm country, the most important rail hub in the United States, even in 1860. In 1860 by 1862, it will become the major pork producer in the United States. It's already the major grain producer. Nobody knew what was going to happen. Reports were being made to the committee almost overnight of traitorous threats to blow up powder magazines, to seize control of the courthouse and aid the Confederacy. So the committee, on its own hook, deputized guards to watch every store of gunpowder in the city that very night. And not a keg of gunpowder was permitted to be taken from any one or any gunsmith store without the consent of the committee, who before issuing a permit had to be satisfied that it went to loyal hands. I think if this situation were forced on Chicago today, we would probably uh, argue it on the 10 o'clock news for about six weeks before we did anything uh, worthwhile. Troops are forming. That same night of the mass meeting, April 19th, the following dispatch was sent by Governor Richard Yates to General Richard Kellogg Swift, 64, then commander of the militia and the 1st Congressional District. As quick as possible, have as strong a force as you can raise, armed and equipped with ammunition and accoutrements, and a company of artillery ready to march at a moment's warning. A messenger will start to Chicago tonight, Richard Yates, Commander-in-Chief. It always gives me a twinge when I read that. I think of our own Governor James Thompson as Commander-in-Chief of the Militia. <laughs> I worry. I worry. Why did Yates do this? because Simon Cameron also that very night had telegraphed him, warning him that Illinois, in an analogy that has been used more times than I care to, but it is nonetheless true because it is trite, that Illinois by its shape is a dagger pointed at the heart of the South. The strategic importance of the Cairo district 
Mound City, Birds Point, Missouri, Cairo itself, at the confluence of the Ohio and Mississippi rivers was the key to the trade further south. The next morning, April 20th, this is tremendous speed. Remember, you know, this is when trains travel 25 miles an hour. John W. Burns appeared as the governor's messenger and told General Swift and the committee that all diligence should be used in raising and equipping their force and that its destination must be kept a profound secret. General Swift issued his orders for the militia to muster, but with the exception of a few independent companies, his force was composed of volunteers, less than 400 men. As per Swift's telegram to Governor Yates dated April 21st, the adjutant general's report at the time, written by Alan Fuller, who tried very hard to keep accurate records, says 495, but there weren't that many because two gun squads of Smith's Light Artillery, sometimes called the Military Battery of Chicago, often described as being the scions of the best sons of Cook County, including, I might add, uh, two Morgan brothers, after whom Morgan Park is named, uh, three Wilcox brothers, who was the first school teacher in our town, quite a few. Two gun squads, they only having four guns at the time, were left behind and were sent for later. Well, they had four cannon, four six-pounder cannons, whose major accomplishment to that date had been firing salutes on the 4th of July. It was suddenly noticed in the middle of the night, on the 20th, that they were lacking something highly important for a campaign against the rebels. And you're ahead of me, you know what this is. They had no ammunition. It is strange to say, in this day and age, once again with speed, that Mr. Gates was called upon to open his foundry at 11 o'clock at night and cast 400 rounds of fixed ammunition for six-pounder cannons. They also discovered that they needed horses to the number of 44 to pull these guns. I mean, after all, we had not spent a good bit of time in combat. So General Joseph Stockton and Colonel Roselle Marvin Howe, the pork producer, went to the Chicago City Traction Barns and rounded up all the horses they could. Stockton rounded up his carriage horses, and Colonel Howe rounded up as many horses as he could find, draft, riding, and other kinds around these stockyards, and were able in the space of about two hours to put together 44 horses to draw the cannons. Now, we have our men, and they were outfitted in uniforms, wait for it, a beautiful cadet gray, they were now ready to go to the front. But artillery without infantry to cover is of no use. What infantry is there to be had? Two of Ellsworth's subordinates had formed two companies, the Chicago Zouaves, Company A and B, and they were present for duty. The Turner Union Cadets, a group of Germans were available. The Lincoln Rifles, another group of Germans, were also available. 
This is the first expedition of Chicago in the Civil War. Then they discovered that they had another small snag. None of these wonderful companies, despite their names, nor the Chicago Highland Infantry forming of the Scots, uh, managed to have what we would call in the trade today muskets. The War Committee went to a Milwaukee company, a Milwaukee militia company, and managed to borrow 50 muskets. The force was largely armed with fouling pieces, single-barrel pistols, antique revolvers, anything that looked as if it would shoot, because the committee ransacked exactly where you would expect they went. They went to every gunsmith, every second-hand store, and every pawn shop in Chicago to round up anything that would shoot. The state, having neither money nor arms, the committee either borrowed, bought them, or took them, and advanced from its funds the money necessary for the purchase of anything that could be obtained in short notice. At 11 o'clock on the night of April the 21st, the expedition started from the Illinois Central Railroad Station amid the cheers of the people and the screaming of the steam whistles. I'm not going to tell you a lot about this. There's a great account in Mary Livermore's My Life in Chicago of them leaving and the two engines. Why the Illinois Central? Well, when the Illinois Central Charter was given, there was a little codicil that if the government ever needed them, they had to carry whatever the government wanted for free to get the land grants. And the Illinois Central is going to be the link with Chicago to the war throughout the entire Civil War. Well, this expedition must have been quite a sight. Think of this. 400 of your husband's brother's sons going off. The only thing between them that made them all look alike was the fact that they were all able to be issued a red blanket which they tied over their shoulder. They had largely no uniforms, largely no equipment. They were entrusted to a 74-year-old man without any military training or knowledge. However, he did have uh, a, uh, a remarkable aid, one Joseph Dana Webster, who we will hear more of during the Civil War and who the governor secretly gave authority to supersede General Swift if they should start to act odd during the campaign. <laughs> the governor was not a man to take chances. Now, this is almost an Ollie North scenario, you know, secret orders uh, with everybody on the expedition. And they didn't know where they were going or what they were going to do, but General Swift knew. General Swift had his orders from Yates and from Simon Cameron to seize and fortify Grand Cairo at the confluence. After providing the force, the next thing was to get it to their destination. Some of the excited citizens wished the committee to seize the railroad and telegraph to prohibit any spies from telling anyone what was going on. But the railroad and telegraph officers patriotically aided the authorities, preventing any knowledge of the expedition from leaking out. In fact, uh, all through the Civil War, the railroads were even carrying the Sanitary Commission, the Illinois Central was carrying the Sanitary Commission freight at one-third the regular rates. And a lot of it was carried free. One of these companies that was going through, they telegraphed the assistant superintendent in Chicago to ask when they were on their way on the 19th to get to Chicago on the 21st uh, if they needed tickets. And he 
radioed back, pass them free, God bless them. Well, no telegrams were permitted to go over the line, and the Illinois Central regular passenger freight started at the usual hour of 7 p.m., but it had orders to stop at a siding so that no one would know that the special train was coming and so it could pass them there. With this arrangement, the military train passed unheralded through the entire length of the state and rolled into Cairo to the astonishment of all and to the rage of many of their citizens. It seems strange uh, at this to say it, but this was kind of a comic opera expedition, as you may have noticed so far. They were told that there were a large number of Confederates that were gathering at Carbondale. And the key link in the southern part of the state at that time was the bridge at Big Muddy. They thought that these Carbondale Confederates would burn down the bridge at Big Muddy, thereby cutting off Egypt from the rest of the state, and then seize Cairo themselves. Well, when they got to the bridge at Big Muddy, General Swift, for a man with no military experience, proved to be somewhat of an innovator. First of all, even though he was 64, in shirt sleeves, cradling a double-barreled shotgun, he was the first person across the bridge. Uh, how many of us who have seen military uh, expeditions of later age have ever seen a Brigadier General lead from the front, especially 164? Oh, okay. Also, he suggested, although he was overruled by the young Captain Webster, that they should rearrange the train and put the flat car with the cannons in front of the engine so in case the Carbondale Confederates were actually there and they had to withdraw, they could use this as railroad artillery to, uh, to beat them back. The uh, Captain Webster did not think this was necessary, and it turned out not to be, but this goes to show you the kind of... Uh, untutored uh, military officer they were getting and so that it would be used to great advantage later on. Well, in the meantime, as they say, back at the ranch, Augustus Burley has sent Stephen Francis Gale to go off in search of guns. When he kept sending back these telegrams for the next week, he got as far as the Springfield Arsenal in Springfield, Massachusetts and managed to obtain all of the arms and ammunition that was necessary for the Illinois troops. A company was left, Captain Harding's company, to hold a bridge at Big Muddy, later to be changed off on and again with Captain Clyburn's company, and the rest went into Cairo. They fortified the confluence. They set up their four guns. They named it Camp Smith in honor of the captain. This uh, Chicago Military Battery, by the way, uh, those of you who remember, at a trip long ago to Shiloh, when you were all around Buddy, Bloody Pond being enthralled uh, by Edwin, I and a strange dentist from Lena were off across the field, and everyone wondered what we were doing out there. We were taking a picture of one of this battery's 12-pounders, which is the original gun on the site. It has a plaque on it that says, This gun held this spot April 6, 1862. The regiment lost 18 killed, 32 wounded, 44 horses, but not one gun. Something which maybe we'll get to see the next time we go. 
Well, Mr. Gale got the arms, loaded them up in cars on Springfield, Massachusetts, and they came from Watertown, they came from Springfield, and in due time reached Springfield, Illinois. The Philidus Woolworth Gates, as I told you, had started his foundry at 11 o'clock Sunday for casting cannonballs. And the first shot of the Civil War, fired in the Western Theater, was a shot cast in Mr. Gates' foundry on that Sunday morning, and fired by a gun trained by the Inestimable. Those of you who remember the name of Edwin Ruffin, remember this name, Lieutenant John Rudolph Botsford, fired the first shot in anger of the Civil War. The shot passed across the bow of a steamboat passing down the river for St. Louis, bearing ammunition for the rebels. They interdicted in the course of a week three steamers carrying contraband freight. So it wasn't so much of a comic opera. Or it wouldn't have been, except for the fact of reading the telegrams that they received. It was thought that they needed help from the federal government. So a telegram was sent and reached General Swift just before Big Muddy, saying that a regular officer was coming to assist them with tactics and whatever help was necessary. This inestimable person, this wonderful reinforcement, this man in whom General Swift could have confidence was none other than Captain John Pope. <laughs> General Swift was soon removed from command and replaced by someone we'll never hear of again, one Colonel Benjamin Prentice, who was soon supplemented by another colonel who no one would ever hear again, Ulysses Simpson Grant. Well, the troops are down there now. They have fortified. They are doing their job. They have fired the first shot in anger in the West. Chicago has gone to war. And then they discover, as Napoleon correctly observed, that an army marches on its stomach. They had neglected to bring anything like knives, forks, plates, kettles, anything to cook with. They took their meals at the buffet in the best hotel in Cairo for the first three weeks. There is an endearing account in John Page's work of he and his brother, he had just received an appointment. By the way, his father, John Page, in turn was Grant's company commander during the Mexican War. He died in Grant's arms, in point of fact. He himself, in turn, received a commission in the 3rd United States Infantry Regular. At the time, his younger brother, who was also with him, received a commission in the inestimable staff of the inestimable John C. Fremont, and his description of Fremont St. Louis headquarters is something not to be missed. But uh, they needed some food on their way, and he noticed that uh, General Grant was talking with Colonel Prentice, and he gives a rather telling account of how he managed to insert himself between Grant and Prentice and the buffet and managed to edge them aside. He says in his memoirs, that, uh, needless to say, this was the last time I tried to elbow General Grant away from anything. And being the gentlemen that they were, they recognized us as boys and treated us as such and paid us no mind. When the Milwaukee muskets were finally brought back and were being cleaned and put into order, Mr. George Abbey, who was in charge of this project, found many of them with more than one cartridge in the barrel, and some had five or six showing how little the boys knew of firearms or their use, 
having reloaded without discharging the guns. The First Citizens Committee continued to serve through 1861 and 62 and was succeeded by a new and larger committee. It devoted its energies mostly to assisting the campaign of John Fremont in Missouri, and it seems strange that neither the federal nor state government had the money to pay men or buy arms. But be it remembered, as they say so proudly, the first shot fired in the West for the Union was a Chicago shot from a Chicago cannon trained by a Chicago boy of the Chicago Light Artillery. And never forget it either. All right. How were these regiments formed? What were these regiments? The role of honor of Chicago and Cook County. In the Western Theater, 12th Infantry, 19th Infantry, 23rd Infantry, 24th Infantry, 37th Infantry, 42nd Infantry, 51st Infantry, 57th, 58th, 65th, 72nd, 82nd, 88th, 89th, 90th, 113th, 127th. In the East, the 23rd, we served both East and West, the Irish Brigade, that is, the 39th, 65th, and 82nd. The 82nd being almost an entirely German regiment in which Company C was made up entirely of German Israelites. Cavalry in the Western Theater, the 9th, the 12th, the 13th, the 16th, and 17th regiments. Hoffman's and Thielman's Cavalry and Dragoons. In the East, the two twin sisters of the, Confeder of the uh, Army of the Potomac who fought the Confederates, the 8th and the 12th. The artillery in the West, batteries A and B, 1st Illinois Light, battery I, 1st Illinois Light, battery L, 2nd Illinois Light, battery M, 2nd Illinois Light. In the East, Company M of the 2nd Illinois Light, they also served in both theaters. Independent batteries, the Chicago Mercantile Battery, the Chicago Board of Trade Battery, Colvin's Battery, and Bridges Battery. I have to take a moment to talk about Bridges Battery because they're one of the most unusual regiments, uh, groups of artillery. In Rose Hill Cemetery, you'll find their battery plot. Bridges Battery, originally, during the campaign in Tennessee, they ended up with having more guns than they had artillerymen. They were originally an infantry company in the 19th Illinois, and they said, who would like to serve these guns? And First Lieutenant Lyman Bridges said, me, please. And he became an independent battery and remained so to the end of the war. But how did they go about raising all of these regiments? Let's listen to another Chicagoan of fame, one Alexander McClurg, after whom McClurg Court was named. In that Chicago Historical Society destroyed by fire, there was a niche which contained a broadcloth coat and a sword and a book of poetry carried by Alexander McClurg during the entire war. The patriotic citizens generally, and especially those composing the board, that's the Board of Trade, although usually too old to go themselves, were anxious to do all in their power to contribute pecuniarily and in other ways toward filling up the ranks of the armies in the field. 
The various companies forming for regiments were each of them raised under the patronage, as it were, of some patriotic citizen, and for the time they were called by the citizen's name. The company which I joined, being liberally aided by Mr. Uriah H. Crosby, the fellow who owned the Opera House and who would later be involved in the great scandal lottery, a personal friend who, though but a young man, had recently elected that noble building, Chicago's pride, Crosby's Opera House, after him, the company was at first known as the Crosby Guards. We had a tent erected on the meager plat of grass then surrounding the courthouse square. Above the tent floated the beloved national flag, and within it, a small wooden table with a fresh muster roll spread upon it, and within it, flanked by two or three chairs, composed the furnishings. Here, the three persons who were trying to raise the company spent the long hours of the day sitting or standing at the door, trying like spiders to lure into their web any promising-looking youth or man who came within sight. Long and earnest were the unsophisticated appeals to patriotism, but we suffered greatly for our inability to show any military competence or experience on the part of those who were organizing the company and who hoped to be its officers. The Chicago Courthouse Square then presented a busy and stirring scene, for it was occupied by perhaps half a dozen other similar tents where other men were engaged in raising rival companies, and keen was the competition when eligible recruits came in view. Each group was anxious to swell its own muster roll. It was curious, as we looked afterwards back to this time, to remember how anxious we all were to secure the large, stalwart, strong-looking men. Physical prowess cut much figure in our conception of the efficient soldier, and we were possessed with the idea that the large and vigorous-looking men were the ones who would best stand the hardships of service and exposure in the field. These ideas were decidedly uh, changed by after experience. It was soon found in actual service that the large and heavy men were apt to be the first to yield to exhaustion and disease and to go to the hospitals while the small and slight men went safely through the most severest duties and exposures, reporting constantly for active duty. As a rule, too, men reared in the country and accustomed to hard work and active life upon the farm gave out more quickly than the lighter and more wiry men from the city. I would say if they, dang, if they drank the water that Bross described, uh, they were pretty tough to kill, I would definitely say. Well... And so the regiments were formed. The Chicago regiments uh, and companies, in fact, at Grand Cairo uh, didn't remain there long because in June they were mostly called back to be an honor guard at the death, funeral, and oratory of Stephen A. Douglas. But soon afterward they shipped out again. Battery A, 1st Illinois Light, shipped out again for the front. The companies, the Turner Union cadets, and the Lincoln Rifles will become part of the 24th Infantry, the 1st Hecker Regiment, a regiment of Germans. Highland Infantry, the Chicago Light Infantry, the Chicago Zouaves, A and B, would become part of the 19th Illinois. Their deeds are to be left for another talk. Suffice it to say, it was Battery A who stemmed the breakout at Fort Donaldson and helped win Grant his reputation. Suffice it to say in the letter that they wrote that Major Taylor, the man who raised Battery B, their sister Chicago Battery, 
was so incensed that they had done this great deed that he would put them in the thick of the fighting next time. And if Doc Clausius were here to tell you of that day on Shiloh when Stephen Augustus Hurlbut won the war. The left of the line, unsupported, where those guns were set, less than 100 yards where Albert Sidney Johnson was mortally wounded, the left of the line, unsupported, who fought in three different positions until they ran out of ammunition at four o'clock, being pushed all the way back to Bloody Pond, in the thick of the fighting and the place where they feared they would be was Battery A of the 1st Illinois Light Artillery with their six guns. If Stephen Augustus Hurlbut saved the war, Battery A saved Stephen Augustus Hurlbut. And the 19th Illinois is for another talk to tell you of their service in the Army of the Cumberland and the charge across Stones River forever immortalized in the George Root ballad, Who Will Save the Left? The 19th, shouted Colonel Scott. Chicago was, though, the heartland of freedom because not only did it provide its men to the cause, it became an arsenal of freedom. By 1862, and they were unable to convince the government, by the way, a superior form of meatpacking was pioneered in the Chicago meatpackers. They were using what was called then the English system, and instead of putting pork in brine to turn into those horrible things that nobody wanted to eat, salted junk as it was called, they found that by laying uh, pork on salt in ice houses, and they took the ice from Lake Michigan in the wintertime to have these cool rooms, that by leaving the pork simply lay upon salt in packing crates so they could preserve the meat, still maintaining softness and a reasonable flavor. But this meat did not go to the army, which as we all know was slow to change. It was transported during the entire war to England. <laughs> Within the first week, the tailors of the city of Chicago pledged themselves and continued this. Now remember, this is when there were seamstresses, mostly women, who would hand sew anything that was needed to be sewn, earning the princely sum of about 50 cents a day for doing it for between 10 and 12 hours work. Outfitted our Chicago troops, pledged themselves and kept this up during the entire war of over one thousand complete uniforms a week until 1862 uh, once again in cadet gray the color of the chicago militia since chicago was a meat packing house and there was quite a bit of beef slaughtered for the local consumption they also had a large leather making industry as you would expect one company alone in chicago produced 102 full sets of cavalry equipment, that saddle, girth, reins, martingale, the whole kit and caboodle, 102 a day during the first three years of the war. They were reported, if there had been such a thing as E for excellence in those days, they would have gotten one surely because their output was greater than the next three contractors providing, put together. 
providing cavalry equipment to the federal government. I spoke a little bit before about how during the war the pig iron industry and steel industry was started in Chicago, which continues to this day to provide the needs, which is something that we did not do at that time. We did not manufacture machined goods very much. So here we have the arsenal of freedom, if Roosevelt won't mind. We have the arms of war, the sons, brothers, and husbands being provided by Chicago. We have the tools of war, the meat, the uniforms, the equipment being provided. We have the heartland of freedom, but yet, What else is not free? Chicago must free oneself. The old brick building is still standing on the corner of 35th and Lake Park. It's almost as if Stephen Douglas standing up there is keeping a vigil over it. He's just across the street. The Illinois Central runs by just as they did 118 years ago. The outbreak of the Civil War had everyone working to supply everything from canned beef to uniforms. It created a bonanza for the manufacturers, provided jobs for thousands of workers. In fact, the war took women out of their usual domestic roles, as in the typographer's strike. Some became nurses, some joined the industrial workforce. Most spent their free time making bandages and collecting bedding and clothing. As a matter of fact, I have found that Chicago, forgive me for saying this, but, but this is another award for the city of Chicago. There was a project, a Vegetables for Grant project, the first victory gardens ever seen on this continent, were established in 1863 in Chicago, where people gave over their house flower lots to growing vegetables that would be sent to the troops in the field and the troops in the hospital. And vegetables for grant, it was called. Now that's something you won't see on your Smithsonian special. But the people still weren't free. In 1857, Long John Wentworth, with the help of the fire department, had attacked the Sands. In 1863, people started to think about freeing the self. In 1863, the Chicago Erring Women's Refuge for Reform opened its doors. <laughs> this, as you would expect, was a protected shelter where the street ladies of Chicago and the people who worked in these hundred houses of prostitution could be taught a trade and could be supported until they could be sent out to a better life. Well, churches in Chicago, grown by about 50%, there's something about the death which touched almost every family that seemed to make people want to turn to religion. In fact, about the only set, two sects which didn't grow during the Civil War were the Swedish Lutherans, or Swedeborgians, and the Baptists, and the Baptists for obvious reasons. The women 
decided that there should be an effort to raise money through bazaars and the twin dynamos of the women of Chicago, Jane Howe and Mary Livermore, started in 1863 a huge fundraiser that combined a state fair, an art exhibition, an industrial display, and a giant restaurant. And the Northwestern Sanitary Fair that opened in late October, their headquarters, by the way, was donated, was in the McVickers Theater, was nothing like the country had ever seen. Bryan Hall on Clark Street, opposite the courthouse, and that's now the site of City Hall in the county building, was filled with everything from farm machinery to paintings and photographs, Tableaus, stage scenes presented by motionless actors, pantomimes, plays, singers entertained thousands. Southern battle flags were offered for sale, along with the original draft of the Emancipation Proclamation, which Mary Livermore had persuaded President Lincoln to donate. Women cooked meals for 1,500 during the 14-day fair. And since most of the supplies and services had been donated, Livermore's giant event netted a handsome $86,000. But not all of the proceeds made their way to the Sanitary Commission. $3,000 were kept by Mary Livermore to that brick building at 35th and Lake Park that I was telling you about. And this was the Soldiers' Home of Chicago, established in 1862, and it provided the kinds of services that the USO would later supply, some of whom found themselves stranded in Chicago without food or shelter. This is, by the way, the first USO ever in the country. The building today is the St. Joseph Carondelet School for Children. The original part of the building is still there. It is not marked. It is a great landmark of the Chicago Civil War, and it's a great pity. Those who had money often ended up patronizing the Levy District. Somehow or other, the vice and corruption in Chicago has always seemed to center on the southwest side nearest the Loop. Uh, it seems to continue there today. The small little soldier's home on Randolph Street was a moral alternative. To be sure that food would be ready, women who operated devised an unusual communication system. Volunteers from each of the three divisions of the city, north, central, and south, each served in rotation, and when a railroad notified the home of an incoming troop train, a cannon pointing toward the appropriate division fired blanks to summon the women. How do you like that for organization? And finally, the directors accepted the donation for the new building at 35th Street, and on May the 13th, 1864, the four-story brick building opened. Mary Liverwar persuaded the Homes Trustees to plan another fair to be held in the fall of 64. The Sanitary Commission, fearful of the competition, talked them into pooling their resources for a larger fair, and that year they produced more funds for both charities. The second Northwestern Sanitary Fair was several times the size of its predecessor. The central attractions were housed in a giant wooden building that filled Dearborn Park, now the site of the Cultural Center, while several smaller buildings dotted the lakefront, now Grant Park. In Monitor Hall, models of the iron warships that did battle and a wax likeness of Jefferson Davis in women's clothes, depicting his attempt to escape Union captors. There were usual raffles, sale of donated merchandise, food and entertainment. 
drew crowds during a three-week run in May and June of 1865. But the great sanitary fair of 1865 closed under a cloud of Lincoln's assassination. The final gross proceeds were expected to exceed a half a million dollars, but the final take was 300000 A bitter squabble broke out, almost another civil war, over how the funds should be decided, divided, and in late 1864, the Northwestern branch admitted that it had employed horrors, professional fundraisers, rather than volunteers. And the Chicago Tribune editorialized against giving anything to the Sanitary Commission. When the money was finally split, the Soldier's Home got $86,000. The Soldier's Home continued until 1869. And that, but by the close of the war, half of the beds that were used were increasingly filled by the maimed and wounded. The home became a hospital, while the decline in donations were forcing it to use its capital to meet daily expenses. The Tribune did advocate a state subsidy which finally came in February of 1867. The new owners, by the way, the Sisters of St. Joseph of Carondelet, converted the sturdy building into an orphanage, adding wings over the next years. They started in 1870, and for the next century until this day, children occupied the rooms that once hosted the heroes of Shiloh and Vicksburg. What else is to be said about Chicago. We can't leave the subject of Chicago during the Civil War without talking about its most notorious episode. Camp Douglas and the Great Chicago Conspiracy. No, not Abby Hoffman. The real Chicago Conspiracy of 1864. At the commencement of 1864, there were about 5,000 rebel prisoners in the camp, and there were about 7,500 more received during the year, with an inadequate force of about 1,000 men, General Benjamin Sweet, the commandant of the fort, kept vigilance over this post. Those of you who have seen the pictures know that one of his improvements was to put the barracks up on piers so that people couldn't tunnel out from under them so they could see under the buildings. But the draft had come to Chicago in 1864, and the supporters of Abraham Lincoln went to him to point out how many men from Chicago, how many men from Chicago, were already in service and they felt that the draft wasn't fair. And in a conversation recorded by Ida Tarbell, Joseph Medill said when he went to see Lincoln to tell him this, Lincoln raged at them that it was the Midwest and New England who had wished war, who had wished for no compromise, and to go home like men and do their duty. And according to Tarbell, Medell still keenly felt the shame on that day when they went home and said no more about it. Well, on every street in Chicago in 1864 could be seen men with an empty sleeve or on crutches. Orphans and woe-stricken women were at every turn. 
Lord Bulwer had just declared an English parliament that it was for the interest of humanity that America should be divided into at least four different countries. Or, in a century hence, it would contain 200 millions of people hanging like a dark cloud upon the civilization of the world. <laughs> the credit of Chicago and the nation was gone. On the Chicago markets, gold rose to $285. The greenback being worth only 35 cents on the dollar. On the 30th of July, the mine at Petersburg was exploded, and in it, with the 29th U.S. colored, the brother of Lieutenant Governor Bross, John A. Bross, and most of his officers from Chicago were lost. General Sweet, however, was the man of the hour. When he was told that Confederate agents were in the town, he loyal got spies, couriers, they went around and thought, can this be, can there really be a mass escape of prisoners planned to burn Chicago in retaliation for the burning of Atlanta? Captain Shirley, his adjutant, tells us the situation. In October 1864, one of the prisoners requested an interview with the Commandant of the Post, General Sweet. The message was sent to headquarters. In the absence of General Sweet, I ordered the prisoner sent to my office. He told me that for some time there had been an organization amongst the prisoners of war to break out of the prison square, and that more than 100 men had taken an obligation to lead the way, to break the fence, attack the guard in the rear of the camp, and in the confusion that would ensue, the 11,000 prisoners then in charge would escape. He said that at 8 that evening was the time appointed, this was about 6 p.m., that the interview took place. It was a cloudy evening and dark, looking like rain. After dismissing the prisoner, I started for the prison square. The officer in charge told me that there seemed to be an unusual activity among the prisoners and advised me not to go around without a guard. This, I knew, would attract attention, if not suspicion. At this time, the barracks occupied by the prisoners were in rows raised on post, and each barrack contained from 150 to 200 men. I noticed there was an unusual stir among the prisoners in the barracks. After completing the tour, I returned to headquarters satisfied that there might be truth in the statements of the spy. I at once sent an order to the commanding officer of the 8th Regiment to take post on the south and west of the camp. I ordered the Pennsylvania Regiment to the rear of that and around it. I had notified the officer in command of the guard what might be expected, and at the same time had strengthened the guard by turning out the two other reliefs. The rain began to fall, and it seemed to me that the camp was unusually quiet. The disposition of the troops had been made so quietly that the prisoners had not suspected it. I greatly regretted the absence of General Sweet. He had been summoned to Wisconsin, but I carried out his plan to the best of my ability. Eight o'clock had scarcely sounded when crash when some of the planks from the rear fence and 100 men rushed for the opening. One volley from the guard who were prepared for them, and the prisoners recoiled, gave up, and retreated to their barracks. Eighteen of the most determined got out, but in less time than I can relate it, quiet was restored. I had the Pennsylvania Regiment gradually close up the outer circle of the race course to the camp and recaptured all of those that were escaped. I think eight or ten were wounded, but they gradually recovered. Two weeks before the convention of the Knights of the Golden Circle, held in Chicago in 1864, 
had assembled. A citizen came to General Sweet and said, Do you know there are 10,000 stands of arms secreted in cellars and basements within four blocks of us? He said, and I quote, I presume the rebels have that many hid in different parts of the city. General Sweet, by his close attention and careful analysis of the facts, called out the entire Chicago City Detective Force, and they were busy all the night through. He had subsequently gotten trusty men in every golden circle of the nights by 10 o'clock and knew what their plans were made. Almost every leading rebel that arrived from the south or from Canada was spotted, tracked, and couldn't move even for the most trivial purpose. For a week or more, General Sweet and his detectives tracked every said and rumored to its source, and the way he carried them out gave great confidence to the people of Chicago. On Saturday, the Democratic politicians, many of them very respectable gentlemen, began to arrive. As day after day passed, the crowd increased. But, and this is a, this is a quote, in the good providence of God, General Sweet and the brave boys under him would, would have kept us from despair. We knew that he had small squads of men with signs and passwords in all the alleys and central portions of the city ready to concentrate at the point of danger at any moment. But the city had another and an efficient source of safety which many of our people, even at this day, have not the slightest knowledge. It was a matter of wonder then, and perhaps has been ever since, how such a horde of cutthroats and bloated, beastly vagabonds spoiling for free whiskey and a free fight could have been kept in perfect order. But it was General Swift. The Chicago Conspiracy is something that we don't talk about a lot. It, it was a true event, as far as we can find out, approximately 3,000 stands of arms, and if you're unfamiliar with the term, that means a musket, a bayonet, and its equipment were found in the city. A Texas Ranger who was later paroled did detail to General Sweet the plot. And as you heard from General, uh, from Captain Shirley's report, Chicago was saved from burning. For those of you who still think this is a fantastic story, I remind you this is about the same time that St. Albans, Vermont is raided from Canada and burned. What page is there left to turn from Chicago's history? I haven't told you about the suppression of the times because it's largely much ado about nothing. As we all know, that inestimable character who we will meet on our battlefield tour, General Burnside, taking offense at the turn of editor story of the Chicago Times away from the war, and also the editor of the New York World, ordered General Sweet on June the 2nd to suppress the Times and stop it from being published. This so incensed the supporters of the Times, they were going to storm the Tribune. The Tribune hired their own protector and no less of a person than Colonel Doc Jennison, the butcher of the Missouri border of the Kansas Jayhawker fame. By June the 4th, Lincoln had received enough heat to send orders to General Swift and everyone to please forget the whole thing. And on June the 4th, the Times and the Tribune continued their publication. 
I could tell you of George Root, the city's great patriotic songwriter, and his war ballads from 1864, The Battle Cry of Freedom. I could tell you of George Pullman and the first Pullman car, the Pioneer, constructed in Chicago. I could even tell you about the working man's advocate, the anti-capitalist. Communism was even abroad at that time. Soon to become one of the most influential labor papers in the country beginning to be published. But I'm going to leave you with the irony of ironies, an incident from my own Worth Township in Cook County. In 1862, Worth Township was a congressional township. It stretched from Harlem Avenue all the way past to Western from 87th to 127th Street. While their sons and daughters, 164 men, including two free blacks, were away at the front, while 16 of the city's daughter were working in hospitals as nurses at Jefferson Barracks in St. Louis, they came upon the happy idea of having the eastern portion secede from the western portion. What should this township be called? It was suggested that perhaps a religious name would be best. So it was petitioned that the new township should be called Hope. The residents of that part of the township, being largely German, insisted that the new township should be named for one of the greatest heroes, one of the greatest Skyans ever to bear the arms of the Union, and insisted almost immediately that it be named Siegel Township. After having kicked that around for uh, uh, about a month, they decided to name the township after its most principal city, Calumet City, and Calumet Township came to be. It's always been a matter of great irony to me that while Worth Township's sons and daughters were striving to keep the Union together, the township split east and west. Finally, to say, what of Chicago in the Civil War? There are literally so many stories and so many incidents that I could have told you that we would be here probably for the next month. I hope that I have been somewhat successful in giving you a little flavor of our town during the Civil War. I thank you. As our usual token, presented to William J. Sullivan for Gowan Service, the Civil War Roundtable Chicago, January the 12th, 1990. Thank you very much, Bob. Thank you very much.